Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas, Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're in or you're out, right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps, an audio postcard from the fabulous Las Vegas Strip. I'm Stephen Maggi, and this week you'll meet one of the finest sports handicappers in the business, Scott Spritzer. Both pro and college football are now underway, and Scott will share his favorites for the 2019 season, including some tips that will help you in the sports book. And as always, our team of regulars is with us. Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com takes a look at the future of Las Vegas and says it's going to be a battle between the visionaries and the bureaucrats. Brett Maley of Pawn Stars is also here, and he'll explain the process involved in assessing whether that piece of art in your attic is a masterpiece or just a good copy. Michael Shackelford, also known as the Wizard of Odds, is back with advice for you if you want to become a professional gambler in Vegas. Finally, America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin, says that giving your guests a choice of wines is really the right way to become a power entertainer. It's football season, and in Las Vegas, that means a lot. Everybody's really excited, and we want to know what's the smart way to play, what's the dumb way to play. Well, we're going to go to the, the really one of the best analysts in the world, and he's in Las Vegas, Scott Spritzer. He's heard on ESPN Radio and Mad Dog Radio and on VSINL Live. Is that right? VSIN Live? VSIN Live, yep. Excellent. Well, Scott, uh, we got one week in the books, and we got kind of just a little taste of it. But as we get ready for the football season, first for the pros, is New England now the prohibitive favorite in your mind? Yeah, and, and in fact, Stephen, when they they were about six to one right around there uh, before the Antonio Brown acquisition was made this past weekend on Friday and Saturday and all that good stuff. So they went from being basically second favorite to Kansas City to becoming the favorite to win the Super Bowl. They went in some books from roughly 6-1 to one to 4-1 to one after Antonio Brown signed on with the Patriots. So uh, they are now basically the favorite in just about every book, if not all books. And then, of course, with what happened on Sunday night when they just throttled Pittsburgh, uh, that makes them even more of a favorite, maybe not odds-wise, but certainly in most of the public's mind. So really the only thing that can stop them probably would be a quarterback injury. Is that right? I pretty much agree with you. You know, it's like that division that they play in, you know, Buffalo's a little bit better than they've been of late. New York Jets a little bit better than they've been of late. But those are still four games in the division throughout the season that they should win. And, of course, you know, so that's the thing. I mean, you're talking about a situation where New England, even though there's a couple of teams out of the other three in the division that are a little bit better than they have been, they could still go 6-0 and against their division, you know, maybe at worst 5-1. and you know, you bring up an interesting point, the big point spread. That's the one thing that makes football really interesting in my mind. When you see a big point spread, is there a difference in the NFL in the sense that, well, maybe they're not likely that, you know, they're going to pull some guys out and try to just stay healthy, whereas in college with rankings and so forth, you want to get as many points as you can? Or do the handicappers pretty much know this? And again, it's just so hard to beat these guys. Yeah, it's kind of a, there's kind of two answers to this. If you would have asked me this 10 years ago, five years ago, six years ago, I would have said, you know, I just will not 
pull the trigger, so to speak, on an NFL favorite that's laying double digits. And in the college football, I, I don't care if I like the game. I mean, in fact, I only won the game by half a point on Saturday, but I laid 34 and a half with Texas Tech over Texas El Paso this past Saturday. They won by 35, so we cashed the ticket. You're absolutely right, college football. If I really do believe that it's off of my power rating, yet a team's laying, you know, 25, 26, 27 points, I'll still play it. NFL, I always thought twice and generally did not do that. But, you know, all of a sudden, with the good being great and the poor being horrible in the NFL and some of these teams, we've seen it go back the other way. And I saw a stat just in the last couple of days where NFL teams of uh, favorites of 12 or more are on a 33-15-2 spread run. You know, so all of a sudden the NFL is even better than college football when it comes to big favorites. And as you know, we mentioned New England laying about 19 at Miami. You've got Baltimore laying a couple of touchdowns at home against Arizona. So it's not one of those things where I just simply pass those games or play the dog anymore. I actually go into those games looking to play on the favorite. You think that's because the offenses are so strong now? I mean, you talked about the Chiefs, the Patriots. Baltimore certainly looks like they've got a powerful offense. And the fact is, these offenses are made to score. You know, you can't really shut them down. Yeah, the NFL used to be all about, you know, let's get ourselves a good running back. Let's be able to rely on that running back. Let's have him carry the ball 18, 20, 22 times per game and maybe throw it to him out of the backfield six times per game. And we've seen over the course of the last few years where the running backs don't mean as much to NFL teams as they used to. Uh, it's all about getting that ball down the field through the air. So, and also you've seen, you know, situations where pass interference penalties are called much more easily now than they used to be. Uh, it's geared towards scoring the NFL with all the rule changes that have been made in the last several years. And because of that, we've seen coaches, good coaches, you know, utilizing those penalties to their benefit, starting to throw the ball more downfield than they used to. And again, not just handing that ball off between the tackles for half the game. And, and that has generated more points. So the teams and the coaching staffs and the organizations that have gone out to get the kind of quarterback who's mobile in the pocket, who can throw anywhere on the field and then get these incredibly in, in gifted athletes, these guys who have hit the genetic lottery to mm-hmm. play wide receiver has just changed the way the game's played. More with Vegas sports analyst Scott Spritzer in just a few moments. Time now for your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com. Today, Scott and I discuss what the future will look like in Las Vegas. Vegas has been different than other places, like, for example, Atlantic City. A little trouble came to Atlantic City, numbers went down, and it literally fell apart, and partly because the city just wasn't behind the activities there, even though that's what drew people and so forth. Vegas has always been different. Is it still that way, Scott? And do you think this is something that can kind of get you through the tougher times? Well, it's a, it's a great question because it's a, it's a big overarching question uh, about Las Vegas and the future of Las Vegas. And uh, you mentioned Derek Stevens. Uh, I, I know Derek, and the, one of the great things about the way he does business is he's very uh, – decisive and he makes changes as he needs to based upon the information that he gets. One of the tricky things about Las Vegas is that that's not the bulk of Las Vegas anymore. The bulk of Las Vegas are these big corporate entities. They're they're streamlining and consolidating for efficiencies. One of the examples that I've heard is that uh, a lot of these analysts will come in and they'll go, okay, you have 15 restaurants at this massive uh, casino. 
who, where do you get your ketchup? And they will, and each restaurant will say, well, I get it from this company and this other one gets it from this company. And so it, it, it makes no business sense that you wouldn't just buy ketchup and then distribute it to all, it's all the same ketchup. But the, but that kind of level of uh, bureaucracy slows down decision making and innovation. And uh, one of the biggest challenges right now for Vegas is trying to deal with what the next generation of player is going to be, the next gambler, the next customer is going to be. Uh, so much to the point where a company like MGM is, has said it's not a casino company anymore, it's an entertainment company because they realize they have no idea how to get that next generation. And one of the reasons is that technology, while, while fast, the decision making is not fast. They have no idea what to do with skill-based gaming. That's, that was their proposed solution to get a younger customer, make it more like a video game. Well, they've tried it and it's failed miserably. And, it, and somebody in an article the other day said, yeah, we're, we're uh, looking at innovation in these games, but we're going to be retired by the time any of these machines hit the floor. So that's the long timeline in terms of gaming equipment and gambling kind of procedures and decision-making. Not everybody has the flexibility that Derek Stevens has. He owns his own company. He can do what he wants, basically on the fly. A lot of these companies, there's layers of bureaucracy. They have uh, shareholders to answer to. So when you have shareholders, it's harder to dream big. You know, Steve Wynn, he had a lot of problems. He's no longer CEO, but he was a big dreamer. He was throwing stuff out there. He was going to do it by sheer force of will because he's like, we know what our existing customer is. Let's go get some more. We're going to do Paradise Park. We're going to do this beautiful lagoon. We're going to have water sports. We're going to have a giant gorilla. We're going to have floats. We're going to have parades, fireworks every night. Nobody gets to really do that in Vegas. It takes months and years of planning. They have to do cost analyses and these bigger companies, it's tougher. You don't see a lot of those those individual kind of dreamers who can just go out and make things happen by sheer force of will or charisma or charm. So it's a great question. Uh, I, I think there are some challenges ahead and it remains to be seen if Vegas can be nimble enough to address them. Scott will be back again next week. Remember to visit VitalVegas.com every day as you can count on Scott to bring you Vegas news first. More with Vegas sports analyst Scott Spritzer in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Scott Spritzer, who can be heard on ESPN Radio, Mad Dog Radio, and a host of other national sports radio and television shows. I, I would agree with you. I think that's also why we get so many injuries. These guys are such a... Everybody's hitting everybody at tremendous speeds. They're going there. It's just physics kind of, right, compared to the old days where these guys, even tough guys like Nitschke and Butt, Buttkiss and those guys could play, for, you know, day at game after game after game. They play hurt and what have you. Yeah, just lightning quick, you know, on both sides of the football. But, you know, Stephen, remember, you know, when, like when I was young and, and you remember these guys also, you know, great receivers were guys like, you know, Fred Belitnikoff. Uh, and, and also, you know, Steve Largent, you know, nothing against those guys, but you don't see that too much anymore as much as you see guys who are lightning quick down the field 
who can catch, you know, who can be down the field 60 yards before you blink an eye. And it just makes, makes such a difference. And also these guys, these wide receivers that are running four four forties and can get down the field with jet speed are also going six three two twenty five now. Yeah, it's you know, incredible. <laughs> guys were linebackers when we were young, you know? Right. It's it's really incredible. All right. So let's say we the AFC we kind of agree it looks like the Patriots there. Uh I guess the biggest competition there probably comes from the West, from the Chiefs. Is that right? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I'm a little worried about the Chiefs on the defensive side of the football. They they weren't good last year. They give out gave up basically just about more passing yardage than any defense we saw last year. A little weak against the run, and then they go up and lose a couple of you know of their key players in the offseason. Houston and D. Ford both gone from the team. They were over 40 percent of Kansas City's sacks that were produced last season. They're now playing elsewhere, and so when I watched them on Sunday against Jacksonville. Uh, we saw Nick Foles go right down the field against him, throws the big touchdown pass, gets hurt on that play, breaks his collarbone, and then a rookie quarterback comes in with his first action ever. Uh, just, you know, hey, you're going in the game now. We lost our quarterback, talking about Gardner Minshew. And what does he do? He goes 22 for 25 wow. and puts up another 19 points on the Kansas City offense after Nick Foles left the game. So that worries me about KC. I think somewhere along the line, the defense is going to cost them in a playoff game. Uh, as far as, but I mean, they're you know, as far as the offense is concerned, they can make up for the defense in most cases and against most teams. I just think if they have to go head to head against New England in the postseason, they're probably in trouble. You are listening to one of America's finest sports handicappers, Scott Spritzer. You know, and I looked at a couple of other teams that did well over the uh, opening weekend, and Tennessee is not as good as they looked against the Cleveland Browns. Obviously, the Browns were getting too much hype. Uh, before the season began. I really thought that Pittsburgh would win that division going into this upcoming season and maybe challenge once you got to the postseason. I still think they can. Uh, They just got their butts kicked both from the coaching angle and the players' angle against the best team in the league in New England. But uh, it's funny because I I really do put New England at the top, and then there is a good drop-off before that next team in the AFC. And I I think you're right. I think I'd have to lean towards KC right now just because – of how powerful that offense is. Any surprises you see in the AFC? Some team that may be good against the spread. Well, as far as against the spread is concerned, we saw Tennessee get off to a nice start, and I thought they'd be a team that would be pos- have a good positive shot against the spread the course of the season. Now they're going to be a little bit overvalued. I was hoping more, Stephen, for like a 17-14 type of win for Tennessee or even a straight-up loss but a point spread cover. And now, of course, winning by 30 against the public darlings of the offseason. All of a sudden, uh, the word is out on Tennessee. But uh, as far as a point spread team other than them that I think could have some success, we lost one that I thought was going to do real well with Jacksonville. We lost the starting quarterback, and I think they're going to pay for that without having Nick Foles until probably week 11 of the season. So really there's no serious team that I'm going to look at like from a macro standpoint as far as a team that I think is going to be good throughout the course of the season, ATS-wise. It's just going to have to be week for week for me. Uh, The Buffalo Bills, I don't think they're going to win this week against the Giants, but I do believe because of their defense, they're going to be a team that you're going to want to take points with Buffalo. I don't want to lay points with Buffalo. I want to take points with Buffalo, and I think they're a team that can cover some underdog spreads throughout the season. Before we leave the AFC, of course, the Raiders are coming to Las Vegas. Now, in the first game, they look pretty good. To me, if Carr is as good as he was in the opening game, maybe maybe they might surprise some people. Yeah, I mean, Carr was outstanding, you know, and he really played well. And there's times last year, 
John Gruden's first year back at Oakland where they were totally on a different page, and, and Carr would come out there and make really bad mistakes in and around the red zone. And we didn't see that out of him last night. He made zero mistakes, basically. He goes 22 for 26, I think it was, on Monday night. And so when I look at what he can do throughout the course of the year, look at a couple of their receivers that they have that played extremely well last night without Antonio Brown. And I'm talking like Terrell Williams was fantastic. I love their tight end, Darren Waller. Uh, Josh Jacobs, the running back, had a big game both running and catching the ball out of the backfield. I think they can have a little bit better season than most people thought. I don't want to get too much of an overreaction on that particular game because I thought Denver was just horribly prepared in the first half of that game. And Flacco and his new offense with his new coaches was just pathetic, the passing game, in the opening two quarters. I did think that Denver out-adjusted Oakland in the second half. They just couldn't come all the way back to get that victory. You will hear more from sports handicapper Scott Spreitzer in just a few moments. Time now for the Vegas Art Minute featuring Brett Mealy of Pawn Stars. Let's do a little fantasy here. Let's say somebody calls you and goes, I think I have something particularly expensive, like one of the masters or something. It's not a question of like, well, yes, it is or it isn't. You, there's a lot you had to do. Take people kind of like what you did through the Da Vinci thing. Yeah, sure, Stephen. I mean, it's it's a long and involved process. You can't just scream from the rooftops, you've got a Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, there's a lot of I's to dot and T's to cross, but it happens. And there are uncatalogued works out there by masters, works that you know aren't in the museums and aren't in established collections. So I do get calls from time to time, people with important works by important artists. And I've learned, as, as you know, through this Leonardo da Vinci project, never to assume that something is or isn't what it's purported to be. So uh, the process is pretty long and arduous. Um, obviously, I am a, an art authority, but only to a certain level. There are uh, experts on Leonardo da Vinci that have spent their entire lives writing books and researching everything from you know his feats in engineering and science to mathematics to art. And most of the Renaissance masters and most of the artist in, master artists in general have authorities that you have to reach out to, you have to check with, you know, catalogs you have to reference. And a lot of times that takes potentially years and years and years. And even at that, you may not have a consensus opinion. So it might be like a flight to Italy. I mean, there's a lot to this, right? And of course, when you're talking about a, pay, a piece that's worth millions of dollars, it's worth it. Without a doubt. And sometimes, yes, you do have to go to the source. I know on the Leonardo, we actually had to go to Milan and we had to talk with experts that some of whom were too ill to travel to us. So we had to travel to them and visit with them and reference some of their notes and their materials. And it was every bit uh, worth it. Uh, This is um, a sculpture that is actually scheduled to be auctioned in New York in the fall. Obviously, a piece of that importance uh, you really have to be careful with. Check out Brett and his gallery, Art Encounter, on your next trip to Vegas. Just mention Vegas Never Sleeps when you call, and they'll send out a limo to pick you up at your hotel. More with Vegas sports analyst Scott Spritzer in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi nationwide on the BizTalk Radio Network. Hi, I'm Michelle Johnson, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. 
Today's show is brought to you in part by the Orleans Hotel and Casino. Located just off the Strip, it offers wonderful rooms, great restaurants, and even free parking. You're listening to handicapper Scott Spritzer. and learn more about Scott at DocSports.com. Okay, let's switch over to the NFC. Uh, first of all, what's your big favorite there? It's not quite as easy to or as obvious as it is in the AFC, right? Yeah, no clear-cut favorite, Stephen. I, I would have probably said if, you know, again, if you would have asked me, let's say if we would have talked a couple of weeks ago, I might have said something like, well, I think you've got to stick with the Rams in the NFC as being the lead dog and then work your way down from there, even though I don't think the Rams are the clear-cut choice out of the NFC. And then I, thought, I saw something in week one by the Rams that would have me a little bit nervous if I was a Rams fan because if you look at what happened with their passing game this past weekend against Carolina, it really was nothing special. I mean, you know, Jared Goff goes 23 for 39 against Carolina, 186 yards, was all he threw for, a touchdown and a pick. And you'll remember going back to the Super Bowl, uh, maybe Bill Belichick and his coaches <laughs> did lay the blueprint for how to defend this offense because if you include that game plus week one of this year, Jared Goff is now 42 for his last 77. That's only 55%. He's averaging about 5.4 yards per pass, which is bad, and he has one touchdown and two interceptions. So we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, they play New Orleans in week two, we're going to see if maybe the blueprint was set on how to defend this team. Now, the, play, the team that they're hosting, New Orleans, I really do believe, even though they had to fight tooth and nail to get the win in week one on Monday Night Football, I believe right now they're just slightly better than everybody else in the NFC. Really? That's interesting. What about in the West? Uh, well, of course, you already mentioned the Rams, but uh, Seattle, San Francisco, are they just kind of average teams at this point? San Francisco's not bad. I, I still want to see more out of Jimmy G. I thought he was good. Garoppolo in the first game, obviously, after missing so much time and really never getting his feet wet, so to speak, in San Francisco last year before the injury, uh, I think they're going to be obviously improved. Uh, Seattle, what scared me about the Seahawks, and I've got them pegged to win 10 games this year, Stephen, a little bit worried when I saw their defense give up 418 yards passing to Andy Dalton, 35 of 51. Yeah. Now, they did sack him five times. That's obviously a good sign moving forward, and they did shut down the Bengals' running game. They held them to just over 30 yards, but a little bit worried about that Seahawk pass defense. They got shredded by Andy Dalton. He's not known for shredding too many no. defenses, and he has a coach, you know, new coaching uh, uh, staff to get used to, a new game plan, but yet was still able to look like an all-pro against Seattle. Uh, Philadelphia would be the other team that I think is, is right up there, and of course going back to a different division now. Uh, but with the Eagles, you know, after the yeah. real slow start, looking as flat as can be, starters not getting a whole lot of time in preseason, I think, hurt them. But watching them adjust throughout the second half, throughout the course of the game, come back and winning that game and being up by 12 before the Skins got that last-second touchdown, I think showed just how strong this team is. And in the Central, I just have to t- check with you on the Bears because everybody was all excited about the Bears. First game against the Packers at home, not much. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny because in the offseason, everybody was talking about the Bears. They're going to win the division. They're going to win the NFC. You know, they, they might be a Super Bowl champion, and I kept thinking, you know, let's pump the brakes a little bit. What we saw last year out of Trubisky uh, through his first couple of seasons was a quarterback who's really strong, generally through the first quarter and a half of the game. And then his coaching staffs and players on the defensive side of the football for their opponents start to make adjustments, his numbers, his statistics would significantly drop off. 
throughout the course of the game. He wasn't the same quarterback in the second half as he was to the first quarter and a half of each game. And although he started poorly and played poorly throughout the other night in week one, uh, the bottom line was is we haven't seen him be able to make the same adjustments that his opponents are making on the yes. defensive side of the football to get the Bears to that next level. Kind of thought they were a nine-win team going into the season because of that and a few other things, and I haven't changed my mind off of week one. They're not as bad offensively as they looked against Green Bay, but they're not as good as a lot of people thought going into the season. One last question about the pros, and we'll do a quick run through the college ranks. But in the pros, you mentioned preseason. Preseason has become kind of a joke in the NFL, isn't it? I mean, at this point, uh, the starters, if, if anything, maybe play one game, maybe two. And, and, and for that, just maybe a quarter or two. Yeah, I was going to say, and maybe not even that much anymore. You know, it's uh, Sean McVay doesn't play his starters. You know, you saw Aaron Rodgers not get in in the preseason. And that's a problem because when you go into week one and you've had no situations where you've actually gotten playing time against another team's top players or regulars, I think you have an adjustment period throughout the first game. And we've seen that more often than not. Teams that didn't play their starters in the, in the preseason or as much as they used to in preseason generally were flat for at least a couple of quarters in week one, maybe for the entire game. So I've heard veteran players all the time say that, you know, it got them in playing shape. So it's a situation now, though, Stephen, where when the new collective bargaining agreement rolls around, we're probably going to see two preseason games and 18 regular season games. And I would certainly hope that at least in one of those two preseason games, when that time comes, that coaches give their starters and their regulars a good chunk of time, at least a first half, to get ready for the upcoming season. Couldn't agree with you more, and I think it's just kind of unfair that the NFL will charge full prices for preseason games when they, generally speaking, are awful. Yeah, and in, and in general, they don't play their pay, uh, pay their players as much in preseason games as you do during the course of the regular season. I'm talking about guys without guaranteed contracts and all that. So I think two preseason games and 18 regular season games is the way to go. I hate the fact, like if you paid full price to see the Raiders and the Packers in week three, I think it was, up in Canada, and then the field is so torn up in the end zones from where the CFL places their goalposts, they can't replace those divots, and all of a sudden you've got an 80-yard field instead of a 100-yard field, and then Aaron Rodgers is sad along with all their starters because they don't like the situation with the field being in the, in, the, in the situation it is in, and all of a sudden you've paid regular price to see maybe a quarter or two of Aaron Rodgers and you don't see him at all. Totally agree with you. I hate the fact that they are able to charge as much as they do for preseason football. Well, let's switch over now to college real quickly. Uh, you know, it's getting to the point where it seems like it's Alabama and Auburn and everybody else. Now, this year, LSU is a possibility. What, how do you see it? Does it come back to those two teams again? Is it all in the Southeast Conference? Or are we going to see some uh, somebody come from some other place? Yeah, I really think the only team from outside of Clemson and Alabama, the only teams that have a legitimate shot would be Georgia and LSU and maybe Oklahoma on that next level. I'll say this about LSU. The offense looks fantastic. I love the fact that Eddie Orgeron doesn't rest on his laurels, and he's added a little bit more RPO and a little bit more breakneck speed to the LSU offensive play calling. I mean, they're running plays quicker than they ever have before, and they look to continue to do that all season long. Georgia's got the talent on both sides of the line of scrimmage to challenge Bama and Clemson. The reason I kind of said those four teams first and then Oklahoma I think the Sooners are going to benefit, you know, not only the first couple of games, they're going to benefit the next couple of weeks 
from a soft schedule. Mm -hmm. If they do nothing stupid against UCLA and Texas Tech, and then they'll have Kansas after that, you're talking about four or five games where they're able to pile up huge offensive numbers. Uh, The quarterback, Jalen Hurts, might be the leading Heisman candidate going into their week five or week six game against Texas. And I think you'll see value on Texas because the public's going to be so in love with these huge numbers the Sooners are going to put up. And again, Jalen Hurts, great guy, great interview. Everything you could want as a coach is going to put up these nasty, nasty numbers (laughs) against some really poor defenses. Then they're going to go up against Texas, and all of a sudden you're going to go, wow, public's all over the Sooners. I think we got some value on the Longhorns who've had five weeks to get all these new faces on the same page. So I think Oklahoma is just a notch below the first four teams I mentioned. More with Scott Spreitzer, who can be heard on ESPN Radio and Mad Dog Radio, in just a few moments. Time now for the Wizard of Odds, also known as Michael Shackelford, a former actuary and top statistician. People are listening and they say, hey, Michael, uh, this is all great, but I want to be a professional gambler. This is what I've always wanted to do. What game would you tell them they have the best chance, assuming they put the time in necessary to prepare? That is a really tough question because we're in a period right now where there is not a huge advantage play game. For a while it was blackjack and then it was video poker. And now there is no one thing that is a dominant advantage play. The advantage players I know dabble in lots of different things. And they may emphasize poker or they may emphasize sports betting. But they, the good ones have all kinds of things in their bag of tricks and know lots of different advantage plays. Things that are still common right now, hole carding abusing tournaments, abusing promotions, mailers, things like that. Things You just have to keep your eyes open on everything that's going on there and, and seizing a good play while you have it. The Wizard will be back again next week. More with Vegas sports analyst Scott Spritzer in just a few moments. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the BizTalk Radio Network. I'm John Katsalamidis of the Las Vegas Review Journal on page 3A every day and online all the time. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to one of America's finest sports handicappers, Scott Spritzer. What's happened to the Pac-10 and now the Pac-12, I should say? I'm an SC guy. That goes way back. And that's, I think, the last time the conference was strong. Same thing with uh, the Big 12 out in uh, in the Midwest. It seems like they, they can't even hold a candle to these teams from the South. Why do you think that is? And then for the better, are there better chances for upsets in that world? Yeah, I mean, the Pac-12, I mean, there's just no excuse for it. I mean, you're talking about some of the most fertile recruiting ground being in the Pac-12, especially in the state of California, and there's so much 
are so many great football players that come out of that state that you could fill almost every roster in the Pac-12 if you can keep them in the region and still have quality football. So, yeah, it bothers me a little bit. You know, I've been out on the West Coast. Well, I'm in Las Vegas, not quite the coast, but I've been out here for a good, you know, 30-plus years, and I'm from what was Big 8 country and is now Big 12, but I was really disappointed over the last several years to see the Pac-12 drop off. Now, listen, I think Oregon's going to be a player all season long, the problem is they don't get to prove it on a national scale again after blowing the win against Auburn. That's a game right. where they had it won and they, you know, they stole a, a defeat out of the jaws of victory, so to speak. <laughs> right. That's a great football team that just blew it. But the problem is they got nobody left on the schedule where they can prove it again. I mean, you would think maybe at Washington in mid-October, but then Washington gets knocked off by Cal, so Washington is out of the public eye. So that's one of the problems for Pac-12 teams where they do get – a legitimate contender with one or two teams every year. If you lose that marquee non-conference matchup early in the season, everybody east of Utah forgets about you the rest of the year. As far as the Big 12, you know, it's fun to watch. Passing like crazy, Oklahoma represents well. Oklahoma State, Texas. Uh, So I think they're okay. But the Big 10, really, outside of Ohio State and Michigan, it's a situation where everybody, you know, you got Wisconsin who's good, but nobody takes them seriously as a national title contender. Nebraska's been dormant for two decades. Yeah. You know, so it's a, they just don't, you know, Iowa's going to get nine wins every year, but nobody cares because they're a very good football program under Ferentz, but they never get to that next level. So it's, I, I like the Big Ten a little bit more than the Pac-12. Again, there's no excuse for the Pac-12 to be where it is right now. Just as somebody, an alumni of USC, who reads this stuff, I always hear about these guys. They pick, and and, and consequently, they put a lot of guys in the NFL. And yet, with the exception of the Pete Carroll days, you have to go back to John Robinson and John McKay. And I'm assuming it's the same thing as some of these other big schools like Texas and stuff where where they used to be dominant, and it's just a struggle at this point. And And I can't imagine why the coaching and everything is so much better in the South. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's, it's a good question. I mean, obviously in the Southeast you've got great recruits also with ultra speed, sure. but it just seems like the coaching has, has moved towards that area of the country. And again, when you do compete for you know, blue-chip athletes out of certain regions of the country, uh, you would think that the Pac-12 would do okay there also because you're talking about a nice climate. Last question, Scott. Any big surprise teams coming in in college football that might be good for betters to take a look at that have kind of snuck a little underneath the the radar so far? Yeah, I don't want to say they've snuck under the radar completely because the public is starting to catch on a little bit, but I was shocked that they weren't a bigger bet this past weekend. And talking about the Pac-12, they host a Pac-12 team this week, and that's Central Florida. Again, it's a team that has been just doing it now for a couple of years. They know exactly what they want to do offensively. They run a breakneck offensive game plan. They're in the top 25, but yet they still aren't a huge public team when it comes to the point spread. I think that's going to change if they knock off Stanford and cover this point spread this week, where you'll finally start hearing, at least in the state of Nevada, when it comes to betting, more Central Florida bets being made. But that's a team that, again, is on my... I I tell you what, Stephen, every single week, the very first game I start out with going back to about the third or fourth game of last year, before I do anything else, I actually start with the Central Florida game and look to see if I think the opponent can slow them down at all, and then I move to the rest of the schedule. (laughs) Well, it's going to be a fun season. Scott, how can we follow you? Because you know this stuff as well as anybody, and people want your advice and so forth. Where do they go? 
Yeah, I'm on DocSports.com. That's the main group that I work with now. They've been around for actually, they're in their 48th year, DocSports.com. Wow. <laughs> uh, Doc, who was Maury Mosman, who passed away a few years ago, uh, started this whole thing. He was one of the pioneers of our business, putting out publications, again, as, re- I mean, as long as 48 years ago. And his son took over the business about eight, nine years ago. So it's great because, Stephen, when I was like 10 years old in Omaha, Nebraska, I was going into these little cigarette shops with my yep. dad and buying these preseason annuals. And one of the ones I would always get is Doc Sports, and now I'm with them. Oh, that's so they fantastic. can check me out there or at, uh, on Twitter at Scott Wins. Yeah, I remember those days if you had to wait for the Street and Smith. And uh, with what you're doing, Scott, you can get this information every week. It's just fantastic. Absolutely. By the way, it's funny you mentioned Street and Smith's because the two I got in the 70s, Street and Smith's and Doc Sports. Yep. <laughs> I remember you couldn't wait for them, and you go to the smoke shop to get it. <laughs> yep. Scott, always great to talk with you. We'll have you on again, and we'll talk about basketball and hockey next time. I appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Time now for Wine World with America's first master sommelier, Eddie Osterlin. Eddie, how do you determine what kind of wines to serve at your next wine party? Well, you know, I, I, I always look at, you know, who's, who am I inviting over, who's there, if it's friends and family or something like that, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up wines that are $10 a bottle, you know, because that's, I know that that's what they like, you know. Um, if I know that the people you know, expect better or, or collect wine, just like that, then I need to step it up enough. But I can enjoy wine at any price level. And you got to understand, as I said before, um, your palate has taste buds that react to sweetness, sourness, saltiness, and bitterness. And just like your fingerprints, your palate is as different as your fingerprints. So not everybody's going to like the same wine. So what I like to do is I like to put out maybe four wines, two whites and two reds for people, uh, at whatever price range I, I'm comfortable to spend, open them up and say to people when they come in, hey, go try these four wines. Me and my wife like these wines. And, um, you know, see what you like. And when you sit down at the table and you're having your barbecued chicken or something like that, you know, sip what you like. And you'd be amazed to see how people choose different wines because that's their difference. So that's a fun way of making people feel like they're coming into a restaurant and you're giving them a wine list. You know, here, choose wine. And rather than saying... you. You're going to have this because me and my wife like this. No. You say, me and my wife like those wines on the table. See if you like any of them. Eddie will be back next week. By the way, in just two weeks, this segment will expand into an in-depth weekly look at the good life in Las Vegas. And that means fine wines, wonderful cocktails, and gourmet meals. Thanks for listening. Next week, we will chat with Time Magazine's Richard Zoglin about how Elvis Presley reinvented the Las Vegas show. Also, please follow us on all the social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Have a great weekend. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas never sleeps.